Well, good morning, Orchard Hills. Um, whether you are here in the sanctuary or outside in the pavilion or, or watching online, welcome. And we are ecstatic that you are joining us today um, for worship. But I just want to put you at ease right away. Don't worry. The theme, Ready, Set, Move, is not for our time um, this morning. Calisthenics or CrossFit or climbing a mountain um, will not be what we'll be doing in this time. Um, I, I will say this. I don't have super extensive speaking experience, but this is the first time I've ever shared a stage with a bear. So that's a new one for me this morning. If this somehow turns into Night at the Museum, I think I'm taking one for the team um, today. So, But it is VBS week, so please be in prayer for our volunteers and be in prayer for the children and families that will be here. That the conversations that are had out back, the conversations that are had with leaders, our volunteers, teachers in that time, that lives would be transformed and that God would do his work of healing and redemption through this pivotal week in our church at VBS. So we're excited for that. Hey, my name is Jimmy Yeager. I'm a guest speaker this morning. Delighted to be with you as we dig into God's word. We are in a summer-long series on the book of Hosea. And Hosea was a prophet in the Old Testament. And God came to Hosea and said, Hosea, your life is going to be a witness of my love for my people. The way you conduct your life, what you do is going to be a witness between the relationship I have between me as God and the people that I created. And he instructed Hosea to take a wife that would be unfaithful. So he marries this woman, Gomer, and I think her name's probably indicative of what's going to happen. And they come together and are united, and then, as prophesied, um, Gomer is unfaithful. She goes and finds herself in the arms of other men. But Hosea continues to pursue her, continues to love her unconditionally. Despite her unfaithfulness, he goes, pursues her, and loves her, and even spends money to redeem her from slavery a powerful story of God's unconditional love for his creation. And this morning, I want to start with a question. In this story, who do you think is the individual that is most blessed? Who do you think is the individual that is most blessed? And most of us would probably jump right to Gomer because she received love that she did not deserve, mercy beyond what we could fathom. And that is true. She received great mercy, great love, and Rick did a great job last week reminding us that no matter what our story is, no matter how much baggage we have in our past, no matter how rough and rebellious we have been, God redeems. And we have a God that loves to restore and redeem broken lives. That is what our God does. So yes, Gomer was immensely blessed in this story. That is true. But I think this is also true. I think we could also make a strong argument that Hosea was also blessed greatly. Now, I'm not going to lie. What he went through was incredibly hard. I imagine that he had nights where he laid awake alone in his bed, knowing that his wife, the woman he loved, was in the arms of another man. Hard. And I'm sure in those times, he cried out to God throughout the night. And here's the blessing and the gift that I think Hosea received is that many of the worldly comforts that many of us rely on were stripped and taken away from him. And what was left? His relationship with the God that made him. And I think the hardship that he went through drove him to a deeper discovery of the sufficiency of his relationship with Almighty God. Because of the hardship he went through, he knew greater the depths and the love of God because it's all he had to cling to in those hard times. So know this, obedience even when it's costly, always brings the greatest blessing. Obedience, when it is very costly, 
always brings the greatest long-term blessing. And that kind of leads us to the heart of the passage that we're going to look at today as we examine the end result of God's people who are disobedient, his justice towards his people who pursue worldly comforts over him. So if you have your Bibles, uh, please flip on and turn to or open up to Hosea chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9. The word of God. Rejoice not, O Israel. Exult not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Threshing floor and wine vat shall not feed them, and the new wine shall fail them. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean food in Assyria. They shall not pour drink offerings of wine to the Lord, and their sacrifices shall not please him. It shall be like mourner's bread to them. All who eat of it shall be defiled, for their bread shall be for their hunger only. It shall not come to the house of the Lord. What will you do on the day of the appointed festival and on the day of the feast of the Lord? For behold, they are going away from destruction, but Egypt shall gather them. Memphis shall bury them. Nettles shall possess their precious things of silver. Thorns shall be in their tents. The days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come, and Israel shall know it. The prophet is a fool. The man of the spirit is mad because of your great iniquity and great hatred. The prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God. Yet a fowler's snare is on all his ways, and hatred in the house of his God. They have deeply corrupted themselves as in the days of Gibeah. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. The word of God. Let's pray. God, you are good, and your word is perfect, and we thank you for the gift it is to us, your people. And so this morning, God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would come, would dwell in this place, would move, convict, challenge us to live for you. There are some hard words in this section of scripture. And so I pray this morning that we would have hearts that hunger and long to hear you, to know you, and that your work would be done through us today. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> hey, Hosea, it starts right off. And he says, rejoice not. He's saying this is not a time to celebrate for God's people had been unfaithful. In the last few weeks, we've looked at some specific things that the prophet spoke to Israel. He said that they have failed to know God, that they have pursued him half-heartedly, and they were unwilling to repent of their sin. And today we're going to look at three things in this section, three things specifically that Hosea says Israel has turned to. And the first is the threshing floor. In verse 1, it says, you have loved a prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. So what is a threshing floor? We don't really have those today. Well, it was a place where the laborers, once they gathered the wheat, would bring them to the threshing floor. And they would beat the wheat, and it would separate kind of the stalk, the stuff they didn't need, from the seed that they wanted. And then what they would do is they would toss it in the air and the wind would blow away the, the chaff, the stuff that was not useful, and the heavier seed would remain and fall so they could have the harvest and the seed to make wheat and flour and bread to live. So it was a place of fruit, a place of fertility, and therefore it also became a place, ironically, of romance. If you look in Ruth 3, um, Ruth respectfully comes to the threshing floor to make her intentions known to Boaz. There's other places in scripture, in Isaiah and Job, where the threshing floor is a place of promiscuity and immorality. Now let's go to the threshing floor for a second. It's late in the afternoon. 
The laborers have been working in the field. They gather their wheat together. They bring it to the threshing floor. They get their wages for the day. So they are tired, they are needy, and they have a paycheck. So if you're a person that makes a profit off of seducing people physically, this would be a place where you would set up shop. It was an opportunity for business. And so God is saying to Israel, you love the prostitutes' wages at the threshing floor. You're going to places where you know it's immoral, but you keep willingly going to those places. You keep returning to the threshing floor despite knowing that it's pulling you away from your relationship with your heavenly father. So church, this morning I ask us, what are your threshing floors? What are your threshing floors? What are the friendships that you cling to despite the fact that they bring you down? What are the places you continue to go to, the social media sites we visit that lead us astray from our relationship with God, but yet we keep going back to them. What are your threshing floors? You know, in in Christian culture today, we love to throw around the word doing life together. It's a phrase we throw around a lot, and I think we define that probably as coming together, going to church, becoming a part of a life group, or maybe even a small group. But I would ask you, are we really doing life together? Is the purpose of that to push us to our relationship with God the Father. I think there's two things we need to do with our threshing floors. We identify them and we ask for help. So to me, doing life together is a brother coming alongside a brother and a sister coming alongside a sister saying, help. Here's the places I'm vulnerable. Here's the places I'm weak. Ask me about them. Hold me accountable. Help me not to keep returning to those things that I know are gonna pull me away my relationship with God, that is authentic accountability. That is truly how we do life together. Our relationships, even within church, are they fake and shallow? Or are we really talking about deeper things other than what we do for a living? Sports, recreation, family, are we truly sharing and being vulnerable, asking for help in the threshing floors that pull us away from our relationship with our Heavenly Father? The second thing Hosea addresses is they're offering feasts and festivals. In verses three through five, he says, your offerings, your feasts, your festivals, your sacrifices shall not please God. They have become defiled. Because of their disobedience, their celebrations and worship were empty rituals rather than ceremonies that would lead them to God. Their religion became an idol, an attempt to manipulate the God of the universe. You know, one of the gods that Israel worshiped was the pagan god Baal. And Baal was the god of fertility and rain. Now those were two very important things in the culture of this day. Fertility meant children. You had other laborers to help manage the household. That was incredibly important. And then rain was vitally important because that meant crops and food. So those were two necessities that people in this day really needed. But rather than trusting the unseen God and having faith that he would provide for their needs, Israel turned to a visible image and said, help us get bread, help us get laborers, help us get children, and worshiped an image trying to get success in life rather than truly trusting and surrendering to God. So church, what areas are you turning to to ensure success rather than surrendering and trusting your God. The third and final area that Hosea addresses with the people is Egypt and Assyria. Now, these were two nations that were prominent. They were military powers, and frequently when Israel was attacked and threatened by another nation, 
they would plead for Egypt and Assyria to come and rescue them, to help them, to bring their chariots and their armies to help them. But Egypt and Assyria did not lead them away. Instead, they enslaved them. Coming for help, Egypt and Assyria seized on Israel's weakness and enslaved them. Rather than remain in the land and plead for God for salvation, they trusted in worldly powers rather than their God. And they were incredible examples from the past of how God had protected his people. When they were leaving Egypt, they were trapped against the sea. The Egyptian army was pursuing them and the waters parted and Israel was spared. When they conquered the promised land in Joshua 10, the sun stood still so that they could defeat their enemies. Despite the examples of how time and time again, despite the fact that they were the underdog, that God moved in a powerful way to deliver them, they still trusted in worldly things rather than their creator. And the heart of that was idolatry. Jen Wilkin in her book, 10 Words to Live By, says this, the repeated refrain on idolatry throughout Israel's history will not be that she ceases worship of God entirely, but that she ceases worship of God alone. Let me say that one more time. It's not that they will cease to worship God entirely, but they cease to worship God alone. So Israel was running to the things of the world, the threshing floors, even religion and world powers to find their security rather than truly trusting and surrendering to God. So friends, this morning, is the glory of God the driving force behind all the decisions you make or is your own personal comfort determining what you do and how you live? Uh, the Jaeger family has a member of our household that has taught us a lot, uh, kind of a visual of what this looks like. I think we've got a picture of them up here. Um, that is our dog, Rebel. And as you can see, Rebel likes the, the comfort life. Not only does he want to be on the couch, but he needs a pillow to kind of rest his head on while he's laying there and relaxing. Um, Rebel is, is not named for his character. The Jaeger family was going through a big Star Wars phase when we got him, so he's named for the Rebel Alliance um, from Star Wars. And he wasn't a rescue dog, but he came from a house that had seven kids and eight animals. So I think his life now is probably a little more calm and tame than what he had, had in that time. And you know, Rebel has it pretty good. Um, every morning I wake up, I take him on a, about a two mile walk, even this morning when it was raining, we were out walking. He's got food, he's got water, he's got neighbors that spoil him and love him, he's got other dogs around him to play with, attention from us. He really has no need. But <clears throat> we do put restrictions on Rebel's life. He is a hound and hounds are driven by scent and smell so he is prone to wander um, throughout the neighborhood if he were not contained. So we have a fenced in yard that Rebel should stay in between. And really that's for his safety and his protection. So if Rebel were to wander, <clears throat> he would really be subjecting himself to danger. We live right across 220 here. He could be hit by a car. He could be picked up by someone that would house him in a concrete slab in their backyard rather than a nice couch with a pillow. Um, this thing's not gonna hunt and gather, let's be honest. If he has to find his own food, he's going hungry for a long time. And then if he ran into a wild animal, he would probably go up to a coyote and be like, hi, I'm Rebel, let's play. Like it's not gonna go well if he jumps the fence and leaves the boundaries that we have set for his benefit and for his protection. And friends, I think that's what we do with God. 
John Bevere, in his book, The Awe of God, said this, God is the only one who knows what enhances us and what undoes us. God is the only one who knows what enhances us and undoes us. So God has set a hedge, a fenced-in yard, if you will, and he says, live in this. This is where life works best. If you want the best enhanced life, live within the parameters that I've created for you. But like Gomer and like Rebel, we have left our faithful lover, our creator, to pursue a life of comfort and ease. And the result is instead of a hedge of protection, as Gomer experienced, it's a hedge of thorns. So friends, do we live willingly submitting to stay and live inside God's hedge? Israel did not, and Hosea had a strong conclusion for them. In verses seven and nine, he says, the days of punishment have come. The days of recompense have come, and Israel shall know it. He will remember their iniquity. He will punish their sins. And Hosea is coming and saying, Israel, you are still God's loved children, but you've been disobedient. And there's a consequence to your sin. There'll be a consequence for you jumping the fence and turning from God. You've broken the covenant relationship with your creator, and you're gonna suffer some consequences for that. And it was exile and punishment. You know, we've talked a lot over the last month and a half about this covenant relationship between God and his people. And this morning, I wanna unpack that a little bit for us. A covenant was not something that was unique to Israel. This was something that was common in this day. And here's what would happen. Back then, you didn't have notaries and long documents to sign and lawyers to stand behind something. What they would do is two people, when they were coming into a relationship, a covenant, they would make this agreement, and then they would take animals and they would kill them. And they would take the animals and cut them into pieces, and they would lay them to the left and the right so there was a pathway to walk down between. And then the parties would link together, and they would make this agreement, and then they would walk through in between the slain body pieces of the animals and saying, I am binding myself to you. We are entering this covenant relationship where we are bound together. And if I don't uphold my end of the bargain, my punishment is to become like these animals. The punishment of breaking the covenant was death. And so when God started his plan of redemption, he came to an old elderly couple that was beyond the years of childbearing. And he said to Abraham, Abraham, out of you, I'm gonna bring a great nation. And all people of the world will be blessed through you. And Abraham said, yeah, I believe you, God. Let's do it, be great. And so he says, take your family and go to this land. And he obeys. And then he waits and waits and waits for many years. And God comes to him one night and walks him through the land. And he says, Abraham, look up at the stars. As many as stars are there in the heaven, that is going to be the number of your descendants. Walk along the beach. Look at the grains of sand. As many of grains of sand that are on this beach, that's going to be the number of your descendants. And Abraham says what most of us would probably say. God, I believe you. I know that you exist. But how can I know? How can I know that this is going to happen? And God instructs Abraham to walk through this covenant relationship. Abraham is instructed to take animals, to kill them, and to set the body parts to the left and the right, just like a covenant would normally be done. But here's where it gets interesting. 
Then Abraham does what most men do right before a pivotal moment. He takes a nap. He falls asleep. And so when both parties should be linked together, walking in between the pieces of slain animals, Abraham is asleep, and God, in the presence of a smoking firepot and a blazing torch, by himself passes between the two pieces, sealing the covenant with him alone. So what does that mean? At the beginning of God's plan of redemption, he was already looking to the cross. He said to Abraham, I know that your descendants will break this covenant. I know they will not be faithful. And there is a punishment that will be paid for breaking the covenant, and that punishment is death. I am a just God, and that punishment will be paid. But Abraham, I will not hold you accountable. Abraham did not walk between the pieces. It was just God. He said, I will pay the penalty for you breaking the covenant. He was looking ahead already at the very beginning to the cross where he said, Jimmy Yeager, you've broken the covenant that I've established with you, my creation. You are guilty. And the just penalty for you being a covenant breaker must be paid, but I will pay the penalty for you in my son Jesus, whose blood was shed on the cross. As Rick said last week, that is the greatest love story ever. So church, what is our response to that? How do we respond to that amazing story of God's love of pursuing his people even when we are disobedient? And I think it's pretty simple. It's obedience. It's obedience. The heart of responding to that amazing love, that unconditional love, is our obedience to God the Father. So what does this look like? Well, I think many of us would say, God, if you could just give me a list, that would be great. Like, let's start a good snap streak together, and you can just snap me every morning, give me the list of things for that day, and I'll do it. That'll be great. And to a certain extent, he does that. In Hosea 4.2, God calls out some things that Israel was doing. There are certain things that are universal to all believers. He says swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. Those are all things that are specific to every single follower of God. Those are the things that if we're gonna be people of God, we should abstain from, stay away from. And there are many sections of scripture like that that say principles that are universal to all people of God. But there are also many things that are not specifically listed in here. When we look at what college we are gonna go to, where we are gonna live. Do I live in Baratat? Do I live in Roanoke? Do I live in Virginia, California, a foreign country? That is not explained specifically for each and individual person in the family of God. But I think God is very clear in how he directs us in those decisions. This next set of verses that I'm gonna share with you appears throughout scripture. These exact words are in Ezekiel, Jeremiah, 2 Corinthians, and Hebrews but versions of this appear throughout the Bible, and I would say this is the mega theme of scripture. And here's what it says. And I, almighty God, will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So what does God want from his children? What does it look like to walk in obedience to him in those things that are not clearly laid out in the Bible? It's submission and it's coming to him. God does not want robots, he wants children. 
Children that come to their heavenly father daily and say, God, I want to live inside your hedges. The cry of my heart is I want you because I know you know what is best for me. I know that you know and trust that you have what enhances my life and what undoes my life. And I'm trusting you to speak to my mind, to put in my mind the things that you want me to do and say. And as I go about my day, plant in my mind the things that you want me to be about. Write on my heart pursuits and passions that are what you want and take away from my heart the things that are of me. It's daily coming to God and saying, God, I want to live between your hedges. Jesus gave us a great picture of what this looks like. In Mark 135, it says this, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Friends, this isn't rocket science, but it will cost you everything. In James chapter four, he says, you have not because you ask not. And when you ask, you ask with selfish motives. So church, are we daily, costly, taking the time to come to God our Father and saying, God, lead me, guide me, right on my mind, right on my heart, Now, I know some of you are parents with young children, and you're like, that is impossible. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, went to a desolate place, and he got alone with his Father. And if Jesus, the Son of God, did that, how much more do we? Coming to God, saying, God, lead me, God, me, begging God to move and direct us. And I know there are countless stories of people in this church that when they've done that and truly surrendered their lives to God, he has clearly spoken and clearly directed them as they walked in obedience to him. So church, this morning, I just have one question to leave you with, and it's this. Are you living between the hedges of God's guidance? Are you living between the hedges of God's guidance, daily coming and pleading for him to lead and guide you? Or are you like Gomer and Rebel, where you're jumping the fence and looking for worldly things to have a life of comfort, selfish gain, ease, and unfulfilled boredom? As we finish this morning and we contemplate that question and some of the things we've talked about, we're gonna give you a gift. We're gonna do two things like we do every week. The first is John's gonna come down and sing a song and we're gonna give you time just to silently reflect, to think about what are my threshing floors? What are my Egypt and Assyria's, the things I run to? Maybe you spend some time in confession just acknowledging to God. Maybe you pray and ask for God to give you a brother, sister in Christ that you can unite with to be truly accountable with. Take some time to reflect upon your life and whether you're truly living between the hedges of God's guidance or you've turned to jump in the fence and plead for God to bring you back. Let's pray. God, you are the great and awesome God. And we know that you love your children. You love your people and you long more than anything for them to come back to you, to be restored and to walk in obedience with you because we know that you reveal yourself to those who love you, who obey your commands. So I pray for Orchard Hills this morning. I pray for the people watching online and outside that you would move in our hearts and speak to us clearly Guide us, prick our hearts, write on our minds the things that you want us to be about and our hearts the things that you want us to do, that we would be a church that faithfully walks in your ways. 
So guide us by the power of your Holy Spirit. We thank you so much for this time together. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.